Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. So my name is Lee Edwards. I'm a fellow here at the Heritage Foundation, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, It's a overlooked and yet critical relationship of the Cold War. The close bond, spiritual as well as strategic, between President Reagan and Pope John Paul II. Born thousands of miles apart, Reagan was the faithful son of a fundamentalist Protestant mother. John Paul II grew up under Nazi and then communist tyranny, but still held firm to his Catholic beliefs. Now, who could have foreseen that these two men would form a holy alliance and lead the way to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism in Eastern and Central Europe? Was it coincidence, or was it what Ronald Reagan called the divine plan. The president and the pope both survived, as we know, attempted assassinations, and when they met for the first time a year later, they agreed they had been saved for a purpose, to help end the Cold War. And their near-death experiences, their shared suffering, formed a singular bond between the pope and the president one that many historians have failed to appreciate, not so our guest speakers today. You can read about the unique relationship and friendship, friendship really, more than relationship, of the president and the pope in a fascinating new book. By one of the leading historians in America, Professor Paul Kengor, of Grove City College. Paul has written a dozen bestsellers, and he's done it again in The Divine Plan. With the help of filmmaker Robert Orlando, the writer and director of an accompanying documentary film, The Divine Plan, and we just seen the trailer for that. Mr. Orlando is the president of Nexus Media and the director-writer of such documentary films as Silence Patton. I assume that's George. Right, right. One of a series of documentaries about the key turning points and personalities in Western history. The divine plan is filled with the new and the consequential, um, the essential Cold War role of the papal nuncio, Archbishop Pio Laggi, based here in Washington, D.C., the importance of Bill Casey's numerous trips, the director of the CIA would fly off and head to Rome and there to make a brief, give a briefing to the Pope and his colleagues. It's no accident that the divine plan often reads like a film script, 
and I can't wait to see the documentary film based on this remarkable and revelatory book. And I hope that you all will talk about what are your plans for dissemination for showing the documentary film. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving Paul Kengor and Robert Orlando a warm heritage welcome. Paul, why don't you begin by saying, well, why did you do this? And then who is this guy to your left? And sure, you sure. Come together? Well, well, thank you. And, and I consider you one of the great historians in, in, in America. And Lee Edwards is truly the, the, the dean of the conservative movement for the, the histories that he's done of, of the conservative movement. We were talking in the hall about, about 20 years ago, you and I, we're meeting at uh, the Coffee Grove in Grove City College and laying out – he was writing Freedom's College, the history of Grove City College at the time. And, and I was just getting started on what would be my first Reagan biography at that point with your help, your help. So the, the way that this came about – so first of all, this is entirely Rob Orlando's film. I'm just one of 14 people inter interviewed for the film. And so I think I'm maybe about five, ten minutes of me in the film and – the what happened was we had published a Pope and a President through ISI Books and the great Jed Donahue, our editor, is is here as well. And so Rob did this film documentary on Ronald Reagan and John Paul II, apart from my book, The Pope and a President, totally separate project. And we realized at one point that among fourteen different people interviewed George Weigel, H.W. Brands, Doug Brinkley, Cardinal Dolan, Bishop Robert Barron, Craig Shirley, Ann Applebaum. I mean, who am I missing, right? So many great people. Uh, Mon yeah, Monica Javonska, Marek, uh, Chodakevich of the Institute of World Politics. When, what, James Rosebush. Did I get them all? All right. Dick Allen, Richard V. Allen, who actually sat with Ronald Reagan. In June 1979, the two of them alone in a room when Reagan was watching footage of John Paul II's first visit to Poland. I mean, talk about an eyewitness. So we had we had 14 sets of interviews, and the transcripts point, printed out to 20 to 25 pages each. And you can use that much of the of the interview in in the film. And so we talked to Jed Donahue at ISI Books and said, can, "We got to do a, a book to make use of this great information." and Jed completely agreed. And the book goes beyond the film in that it takes a deeper theological, philosophical dive into what these two believed. Dealing with John Paul, Carol Wojtyla's work on phenomenology, he was a philosophy professor, right, long before he was pope or even cardinal. So we decided to do a book, and so the book is – I don't, we don't really like the term companion book to the film, but I guess it is a companion book to the film, right? But it's but it goes beyond the film and addresses certain issues that we couldn't totally talk about in the in the film. Yeah, I think it, I think it embodies our research in narrative form, but it has the kind of vertical depth to go behind the whys, and it was worth doing because I felt Dr. Kengor did so much to accomplish the Pope and the President, but it's an epic tale, so by definition he has to keep it kind of historical for the most part. But while we got into the subject matter, we realized there's a lot of drama here. They're ex-actors. They talk a lot from theological perspectives. How does theology overlap with politics and, and their intellectual lives? And they went on and on. So we said it's time to dig this up a bit more and, and have it be a book as, as the building block toward the film. 
So how many times did they meet? I mean, uh, I think most of us think, well, just, you know, it was very casual. It was maybe a, a photo op between them, but actually it was more serious than that. Yeah, so they, they met, well, they met for the first time in June 1982 at the Vatican, and Ronald Reagan had wanted to meet with John Paul II from the moment that he, that he saw the footage from Poland in June 1979. In fact, he said to, to Dick Allen, who was interviewed in, in the film, and Allen said, I looked over as we watched footage of the, of the Pope's return to Poland with these crowds of millions of people. They were talking foreign policy. They were at Reagan's home in California. And they turned on the evening news, and Alan said, I looked over, and there was, there was a tear in Reagan's eye. And he said, Dick, that's it, that's it, that's it. The Pope is the key, the Pope is the key, the Pope is the key. We've got to find a way to get elected and, and reach out to this Pope and Vatican and make them an ally. So Reagan had to get elected. Not easy to do, right? It did make it look easy, though, right? Won 44 out of 50 states in 1980 against Jimmy Carter. And they, 1981, he's inaugurated, January of 81. And then the whole thing is kind of derailed by a couple of assassins or would-be assassins. Reagan was shot here in Washington, March 1981, and then John Paul II, May 13, 1981, feast day of Our Lady of Fatima. And that was in Rome. That was in St. Peter's Square. So that delayed it, and then they, they finally got to meet June 1982 at the Vatican, one-on-one -on -one for about an hour. The, the records on that are sealed at the Vatican until the year 2057, <laughs> 2057. But we have a good idea of some of what was said uh, from witnesses who were there, who were there with Reagan, Bill Clark was there with Reagan, whose, um, whose granddaughter I just saw in the hall here. Bill's granddaughter. But they, so we know what they said, what they said to one another because they, they told their, their staff. So, sorry I'm going on too long, but they, so they would meet in 1982, 84, 87, 87, 95 times they met one another, which is more than Reagan and Gorbachev met, by the way. I was going to add that James Rosebush was also eyewitness to their meeting yes. at the Vatican, also, and that's also in the film. Right, right. Tell them who James is. He was this. Uh, Nancy Reagan's secretary. Right? He was he was a personal assistant to both uh, Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan, and wrote a great book called True Reagan, and and James Rose Rose Bush really understood the spiritual side of Reagan and saw it in, in a way that a lot of other people didn't. So this is the dramatic flair part of it. Speaking with James Rose Bush, who's in the back seat, listening to how Ronald what were Ronald Reagan's favorite hymns. I don't know if you know In the Garden was his favorite hymn, which is, I thought, fascinating to learn that. And also, he's in Reagan's closet helping him pick the suits. And so it was so intimate to talk to James Rush about the man outside of the roles he played and uh, things like that. Again, why the dramas needed to bring out a deeper psychological component to history in these cases and politics. He said that he... So a reporter asked what was Reagan's favorite hymn, right? And so Rose Bush actually went up to the president's private room, was at the White House, and I think he said Reagan was in a towel or something like that, and Reagan just started singing it. He started He started. I singing. come to the garden alone where the right. dew is still on the roses. Do you guys know the, the hymn? But if you, knowing that, I think it's so revealing to Ronald Reagan. And the voice I hear, this, um, anyone want to finish that? The voice I hear beyond the name is the Son of God disposes, discloses. 
and he walks with me, talks with me, tells me I am his own. It's very revealing for the divine plan. <laughs> Where did this word, with this phrase, divine plan, come from? So it was it was used by, first of all, Ronald Reagan many, many, many times throughout his career. We open it up in the book, one of the instances that he used in a public speech in 1983. But the first occasion I saw of him using it was a 1952 speech at William Woods College in Fulton, Missouri. It was a commencement speech. At that time, it was an all-women's college. And he talked about marveling at this divine plan of God that had put this, this nation between two great oceans in order for some providential purpose. So Reagan had this very strong sense that he got from his mom, Nell Reagan, his Disciples of Christ denomination, and that God was in control of events. And the things that happened to you, good and the bad, were always for a reason laid out by a loving God. And if you're just faithful to God and trust in God, that everything will work out for the best in the end. That's what he believed. Now, the phrase, it's an acronym, the DP. Bill Clark, who was Ronald Reagan's closest advisor, he and Ronald Reagan would talk about it so often that they just referred to it as the DP. And, and, and many times they'd be riding together at the Reagan ranch on horses and, and, and they'd say, oh, it's the DP, Bill. It's the DP. And Bill Clark would say, it's the DP, Ron. It's the DP. And I, I was Clark's biographer, so probably a hundred different times Clark would say to me, well, it's the DP, Paul. It's the DP. Which John Paul II said, what's the quote? Uh, Coincid for for a, not, I don't know if it's a non-believer, but for a person, to a Christian, what a, per, a person believes is coincidence. A Christian believes is divine providence. It's divine providence. Yeah. So people are not surprised to know that a pope would think that way, but Ronald Reagan thought that way as well. And they believed that, that the surviving the assassin's bullets was part of a divine plan that brought them together, that God had spared them for a special purpose. They said that to one another at the Vatican in June 1982, which would be to come together on this global stage to, to take on and defeat Soviet communism. Let's go to questions from the audience. So please, uh, do we have somebody here with a microphone? Right, right. He said that, Reagan said that to Allen even earlier. It was late January 1977, right after Jimmy Carter was inaugurated. And and so Allen went out to, Allen was thinking about running for governor of New Jersey, your home state, and the and he flew out to California, California to ask the former governor of California, who's a leader in the conservative movement. Lee wrote the first biography of Ronald Reagan, by the way, the first biography. When was that published? Uh, 70? 67. 67. It's amazing. Uh, and that that's when he was sworn in, 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 in uh, 67. But he, he flew out to ask Reagan for his endorsement, and he said he was so compelled by what Reagan had to say about the Cold War and foreign policy. And Reagan said to him, Dick, my idea of a policy toward the Soviet Union and the Cold War is this simple. We win and they lose. 
what do you think of that? And Allen said, I immediately abandoned my plans to run for governor and decided to join Ronald Reagan in this, you know, this effort, this crusade to take on Soviet communism. It, no one had ever thought that way before. It's worth mentioning also that that characteristic played out with Bill Casey also, who was retired at that point and said, if you want to bring me back to bring down the Soviet Union, I'm in, count me in. But he had no, he had no desire to be in politics at that point. I, he was in finance and got turned around to do that. So it was characteristic characteristics that these other men, very powerful men, were following Reagan. And once he made the call on the mission, they were all on board. Well, and they called uh, Bill Clark, called uh, Bill Casey from Ronald Reagan's ranch, and they said, Bill, you call him. And they called Bill Casey and tried to convince him to, uh, to join the Reagan campaign in 1980. And then he would eventually become his, his CIA director. Herb Meyer, who was the right-hand man of, of Bill Casey, said, people don't understand how religious Casey was. He said, but when Casey got that call to run Reagan's CIA, he believed that God was giving him one more shot. And I said, at what? And he, and he said, one more shot to take down and defeat Soviet communism. One other anecdote, anecdote in the film is that when Dick Allen lists all the Catholics that were in Reagan's cabinet, there weren't only Catholics, but he lists that core group of Catholics, he stops with Bill Casey and says, very devout Catholic. I thought that was interesting. Because you know? yeah. he went, Bill Clark, right, to myself. Sure. Bill Casey, very devout Catholic. Right. <clears throat> you mentioned Bill Casey. This No, there were this story of the trips which he took, the, Mr. Casey took when he was head of the uh, CIA, to Rome to brief the Vatican. Did it really happen? I mean, uh, how many times did it happen? People sort of, I'm not sure whether they were exaggerating or not, but that there were so I, trips. Yeah, when I was with Dick Allen in my studio, I, I went after this because I, this was my one golden opportunity to say, you know, eyewitness in the room, let's, I'll shut the camera off if you want, but we're going to have to go there. You know, I, I said, so you're giving satellites, you're going to this place, you know, are we talking about something that's kind of more of this myth that has formed over time because people would like to aspire to be? And yeah, you know, so I broke it down in front of us. Nope, we were there. We I sent some of the satellites. It went to Casey. There were all these flights and satellite went to, photos. <laughs> satellite photos, right? And I finally said um, to him, "Okay, so let's turn the cameras off." <laughs> I said, "I want to know more." And he says, "I really can't share that much more with you." I said, "Why?" And he says, "Because then I'm going to have to kill you." So he made the point that it's there, it's legit, and a lot of this can be put together as factual historical fact. Mm -hmm. And as to the number, you could speak to the number of the trips, the planes, and how many times, and the general. Yeah, so no one really knows exactly how many times Casey uh, flew over there, as Casey's son-in-law, uh, um, Owen Smith, says. He said, but he said, but they, they, he was going over there a lot. Mm -hmm. And, in, in fact, Herb Meyer told me about one occasion where he walks into Casey's room and there's this giant photo framed and like leaning against his front desk. And he said, what's that? And Casey said, oh, I'm going to meet with the Pope next week. It's his birthday. I figured I'd bring him a gift. And he said, well, what is it? And he said, it's a satellite photo of his visit to Poland in June 1979. <laughs> and he said, you see that massive crowd and that little speck of white in the middle? That's him. <laughs> and, 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 he, and he said, crazy. He said, some people would bring the you know, the Pope, a box of chocolate or a bottle of wine, you're bringing him satellite photos for, for a birthday present. And, 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 he, and he asked him when he came back, he said, how did the Pope like your picture? He said, oh, he loved it. He loved it. But, but and, uh, Carl Bernstein even reported on sure. this, right? But they said that he was, 
John Paul II, I mean, here we are in 2019, and we've got a room of young people who can get satellite photos on their phone. It's crazy, right? But, but, but 40 years ago, that kind of technology, just I, you know, the, the Bishop of Rome was shocked by that, that he could see the, the Soviet missile, missiles in Czechoslovakia and troop movements. To him, he was just blown away by it. Yeah, I was going to add, I think as an entree point into the film, I was fascinated by the fact of, as a filmmaker trying to transcend, you know, partisan politics all the time and tell stories that are universal in nature, I had to, I had to reconcile the fact that Carl Bernstein did the original pass on this and Paul Kanger right. <laughs> did it 20 years later. And both of them, well, Carl Bernstein was kind of panned for it. He was, from his peers, they didn't accept. But if you read his book, um, His Holiness, He's making a very strong case. Like really the good. basis for this whole mission and what they did was their faith. And he's like, you guys are not getting it because you're not thinking that way, but this is their faith doing this. They pray. They, they believe in God. They believe they were called for this. Their assassination drew them together. And, and when I saw it at Paul Kenger, I said, this is a story that has to get out to the public because it's not about politics. It's, it's a, an elevated, I think, story that has character beyond the players, beyond the politics. Well, and it was Bernstein that it was the cover story for Time magazine. Right. The Holy Alliance. 1992 called it the Holy Alliance. And he's the one that really first broke the story. Um, and speak, can you address the theodrama? So we, it's, it's interesting. I think both of us would do, came to this conclusion after the fact as we were digging deeper and deeper. I, you know, when you make a film, you head out, you have kind of a hunch, you, you set out to find something, you know enough facts that there's true, you try and develop a narrative, I've checked with Paul, do you think this narrative could be justified? And, but you're still experimenting to, to some degree, it's a laboratory, because you may not find everything you're looking for, and if you do, you want to be a propagandist, you can do that, but I was trying to tell an honest story that I could st sit up here like this and tell you, yeah, with conviction, I know what I know, and it's in the film. But what we came to the conclusion was I felt like we were creating a genre that was unfamiliar because it's not really history. It's based on history. It's not really political, and it's not theological, but it was something that was a combination. And when we um, interviewed Bishop Barron, he called it a theodrama, like on camera. He called it a theodrama. I didn't quite know. At the time, I knew what a theodrama was because I come from a narrative background, a dramatic background, and I understand using it as an analogy that, you know, in a drama, there's a, almost a parallel to real life. You have a script, but you have to interpret a script. And in interpreting it, you stand on a stage. And in this case, their political stage was their stage. Uh, just a parenthetical, we thought the tagline would be something like, two actors whose greatest performance didn't happen on the screen or on the stage. It happened on the world stage or the, you know, the stage of the real world, which I thought was significant. Because they were both actors. Right. I mean, right, Carol Wojtyla. Very accomplished actors. Very, both of them, I mean, you have to say... Reagan was on the inner core of Hollywood, and, and Wojtyla was the top theatrical actor of, of his time. So you're talking about people who know how to take a moment and a, have a presence and all those things. But um, my point was, so we finally came away, and now looking back, I realized I think we've created a new genre in that it, we're telling a political story, but the implications of it, because we're talking about the divine plan piece of it, is that it's pointing to higher meaning or pointing to other things, and I think the theodrama is the best technical way to capture what the genre is, both in the book that someone said is captured, you said it read like a script, because we organize it according to the drama, the drama of the film. But I think it, it's interesting now looking back. So this is our latest, I'm writing an article on this to be published soon. It was um, Hans Urs von Balthasar who, who uh, wrote a book on theodrama, mm -hmm. and the what Bishop Barron kind of naturally went to that and started using that language mm -hmm. Uh, brother, the Bishop Barron interview is so good 
right, Jed? That I, I just felt like it could be its own book. Just, you know, you just, just publish this this twenty page transcript of, of, of what Barron is saying. This is this is amazing. This is extraordinary, which is one of the reasons why it necessitated a book because he he's probably only in the film like everybody else for five minutes. But but what he had to say was so insightful. Yeah, and even even digging on this this latest article I'm working on, I'm realizing the opposite of. So this is my filmmaker brain working, but I, I see the opposite of a theodrama is an ego drama. So if you think about what most of Hollywood would be, right, it's the perception of the two is that in one case, it's focused or starting point is the ego, the self, pleasure-seeking, blah, 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 whatever you want to fill in the blanks there. It doesn't mean that can't be entertaining. But when you think of a theodrama as a complement to that, it's almost like in the film world, the dramatic world, I'm paralleling the real world, right, between the secular and the sacred. And So I'm try- I didn't set out to make a sacred film, but I understood that I'd be entering sacred space by setting it up that way. And I think now we... We have a theodrama on our hands, right. <laughs> and we need to deal with it. <laughs> sure. uh, questions from the audience, please. I believe, um, oh, sorry. Thank you for coming. Um, I, I believe within the Catholic Church uh, there were movements, particularly in Latin America, that, um, you know, the, the so-called theology of liberation. And um, I wanted to know a little bit more about how uh, St. John Paul II uh, dealt with this um, kind of, you know, schism within the church, particularly in this uh, region. I know there's um, there's a very famous footage when he visited Nicaragua right. of him just scolding one of the one of the priests who had you know taken arms um, with communist guerrillas and later you know uh, the Sandinistas. So I don't know if you could elaborate a little bit more about how he dealt with that. So I, I think somewhere between the hagiography of these men, you know, in the case of the Pope, it really is the hagiography, but and and a very cynical, political, almost like Marxist skepticism about the two men. Somewhere between there is where we're finding our ground. But I think if you if you favor the cynical more, you'd have to say that the deal was the CIA gets the Pope, and we, the United States helps. Uh, Poland and supports Poland and Eastern Europe to bring it down, but in return becomes a helpful force to to keep back the bishops, the liberation theology bishops in Latin America. That, this is very simplistic. We don't have a lot of time to, un, to unpack that. If you look at it the other way, you could look at it as that he came from a different ilk, a different type of paradigm for his theology, and he wasn't a liberation theologian, which I, he wasn't, by the way. So I think if you want to say in principle what he's doing is actually putting down something that he sees unhealthy in the balance of the Marxist strain that's underneath it. And, and he knew this. He carried around a Marxist journal with him, like he knew the root of Marxism and that Marxism was fundamentally wrong because it didn't anthropologically describe man correctly. So I don't, I see it's probably a blend. And I think when they use those events, those incidents, they're again exceptions to the rule. I don't think you could make a case through an exception, but I'm sure he lost his temper a few times in, in Latin America. But yeah, imagine how enormously frustrating it was to know that. Here he is, and Ronald Reagan as well. They're trying to aid the church and the solidarity movement in Poland as the wedge to to light a fuse at the base of the Berlin Wall, right? A wedge that would split the entire communist bloc. And then you have in Latin America orders like the Jesuits, who who are supporting liberation theology, trying to you know trying to combine Marxism with the Christian faith. It, it must have, it was tearing his hair out at, at this. And you know, he, yeah, he believed, and you know, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth has talked about this as well. That 
they they had the communists had their anthropology wrong, and you know, Benedict the Sixteenth has talked about how, uh, as Christ told Satan, right, man does not live by bread alone, and the communists believed that if you could simply solve the economic problem, then everything would be okay. You could usher in the new Jerusalem, but it's not that simple because man doesn't live by bread alone. Man is a spiritual being. So if you fail to get the anthropology right and your understanding of the human person right, then everything else is going to fail after that, which was the fundamental flaw of the, of the Marxist worldview. Yeah, and, and if there's a place for the film to kind of push back on that philosophical piece, I think it tries to do this, the book and film. It's just that if nothing else, it's a complementary way. It's not a good or bad or all, you know, either or. It's probably a both and, right? Complementing the fact that faith must be respected in the, in the human historical journey, having like academia teaching it in spite of that is kind of a flawed system that still to me echoes with the Marxist tools of interpretation, economic, class warfare, identity politics. It's still seeing, seeing through a non-cultural limitation. It's seeing through economics and power. And I think I'm this film and this book push back on that and say, no, there's a whole other way, and most people believe this, of looking at the world, and it's a bit more complex than that. And the names that have come up in this presentation have all or nearly all, with one big exception, been Catholics. And I wondered... Does anybody have any idea if Ronald Reagan, whose father was Catholic, although not a strong figure, I guess, mm-hmm. um, did he ever have any thoughts about that himself? And if so, what kept him back? Or, or maybe not. And then second question, were there any um, Protestant figures who were kind of at the heart of this working out the divine plan? How about I do the first one or the second one? So Paul and I uh, agree very often. (laughs) Even writing this whole book, we agree. In this case, I think we're a bit different in how we see Catholic influence. I argue, and the language matters here, but I would argue he was culturally Catholic only because I don't think you could avoid that, (laughs) just being born in a Catholic environment, not in the teaching, not not in the catechism sense, but in the... An environment, there is an orientation, I think, that comes out, and Craig Shirley speaks to this in the film, through a communal orientation that actually. Craig's not Catholic. Right, he's not Craig, Catholic. Craig actually mm-hmm. used the term, right? Yeah. Catholic. Yeah, yeah. And he, he actually he, he posed that it's the difference between the way Margaret Thatcher, as a Methodist, would have approached things. It's more individualistic, and you could see these tensions even in the Bible between the Gospels and Paul's letters of is it individual experience versus a group, a communion of people that do things as a mission, as a group. So the tension's been there from the beginning of time. So I think, but I do think it's impossible being brought up Catholic and having traveled through evangelical and mainstream Protestant circles to the point of going to Protestant seminary. I do still sense there's a difference. And the two should be reconciled, in my opinion, but they're not always reconciled. So how you fall into that view of communal language, spoke from the hour, not the I, a lot Reagan. I would say there's some influence just being born to a Catholic, but I don't think it plays out in his thinking. I think his thinking is much more of a Protestant, Presbyterian, evangelical strain. Yeah, and, and I and 
with the sovereignty of God and that sort of general right. You you can see he so he was he he was a member of the Presbyterian Church, National Presbyterian Church here in Washington, which was a PCUSA Presbyterian Church USA. But he was always sort of more general evangelical, and his mother was Disciples of Christ denomination. So in his home, he and his mother were on fire, Protestant evangelicals, disciples of Christ. And then his brother became a very devout Catholic, Neil, a daily communicant until until he died. And along with his wife, Bess, and Bess lived to be like 102 years old. I mean, she... The the father was Catholic, and but it's hard to say how. I mean, the typical view is that he was not a very good Catholic, or kind of apathetic, or not really practicing. I don't know. He's a member of the Knights of Columbus. It's 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 hard to get exact information. But among the people around Reagan, well, James Rose Bush, um, not Catholic. Cap Weinberger wasn't. Gene Kirkpatrick, no. Nancy, that's right, Nancy. Uh, Nancy's parents. Right. Yeah, but but it but what's interesting is driving this sort of relationship and the alliance. They don't like using the word alliance in people. Partnership between Reagan and John Paul II. You had guys like Clark and Casey, and there were also speechwriters. The chief speechwriter Tony Dolan, who wrote the Evil Empire speech, the Notre Dame speech, was Roman Catholic. Peggy Noonan, um, Peter Robinson, who wrote the. Berlin Wall, tear down this wall speech, converted to Catholicism while he was working as a, as a Reagan speechwriter. But, but, but I, yeah, Pat Buchanan. But it was that 1981 to 83 period, Richard V. Allen, Casey Clark, that were all forming the, the partnership with, with the Vatican. I had on my, on my desk at Grove City College, I just pulled this about six months ago, it came up in my old Clark, Bill Clark files, but it's a, it's a memo from Clark to Reagan it's dated December 24th, 1982, and it just says, uh, hey, with Christmas coming up, uh, he's writing it to President Reagan. He said, you should just give a call to John Paul II, who's the leader of the world's largest grouping of Christians, and just wish him a, a Merry Christmas and talk to him maybe about events in Poland and, and in Lebanon, and that was it. It was just a memo, and Reagan checked it off, will do. And it was just that kind of you know, that kind of nudge, but it was important. Clark Clark was very attentive to it. I, I would just add again, and I'm not the expert on the stage here, but I would say maybe that's good sometimes because I don't get into the weeds as much. But my my take on Reagan is that it was almost a combination of Americana manifest destiny blended with some popular evangelicalism, and I think a general orientation to Protestant is Protestant faith. But I think it's a combination, almost seeing like a Jimmy Stewart world was the world he came out of where people are generally decent. The community, the main street and the community are basically Christian people in the general sense of the word, uh, not in the specific religious sense. And that, that orientation was the manifest destiny, that we had a unique country born of a unique destiny and that he was living out that faith in his life. But I don't think it, it was heavily Protestant or even aware, like consciously Catholic. That, that's my take on it, but you uh, can chime in. Uh, so he was definitely Protestant, right? And not Catholic, although Bill Clark used to say Reagan understood Catholicism better than most Catholics I know. <laughs> and part of that, too, was growing up. So imagine growing up in a house in the 20s and 30s when Protestants and Catholics were at each other's throats. And you've got a Catholic father and a Protestant mother and a brother who goes to mass. Bro brother, brother was baptized with Ronald Reagan by total immersion when they were both like 
11, 12 years old in the, in the tank in the Disciples of Christ Church, right? They had an actual tank up on stage, curtain in front of it. And, but then the brother, after a little bit after that, starts going to Mass with the Father every week. So he learns this you know, ecumenism, this ecumenical nature. He learns it at home. He learned tolerance at home, religious tolerance. You have spoken about the uh, the five visits that they had together. Would you uh, speak a little bit about the development of diplomatic relations between the U.S. and the Vatican that President Reagan oversaw, and also the relationship with uh, Archbishop Laghi? So the the Reagan administration formally recognized the Vatican in 1984, which was huge. I mean, that was very, very significant. I mean, Lee, that went back to, I think, Harry Truman, right, uh, con- considered it and, and couldn't, <laughs> couldn't pull it off. Uh, uh, John F. Kennedy would never even consider it because that would have you know, reaffirmed everyone's suspicions that he was on the phone every day taking orders from the Pope, right? So, so he couldn't do it. So it eventually goes to Ronald Reagan. One of the most interesting things I've – I don't even bring this up, but – that I saw at the Reagan Library when I was going through the correspondence by the attempt by the Reagan administration to formally recognize the, the Vatican were the really angry letters from conservative Protestants and Baptists invoking separation of church and state like they were ACLU lawyers. And, and so I've got a letter from uh, you know, an ACLU atheist you know, militant, you know, anti-religious person who's who's against this. And then I've got, you know, somebody who's super conservative from the South saying, Mr. President, the Constitution talks about a separation of church and state. I'm like, dude, no, it doesn't. You know it doesn't. What are you doing, right? If you had any idea that you and the ACLU are in lockstep on this, uh, b- some brutal letters at the at the time. But But Reagan shrugged it off and ignored it. <laughs> And proceeded forward and recognized the Vatican, and uh, and it did and it didn't usher in the apocalypse. Yeah. Well, I remember General Walters. He's quoted in the in the film and the book. And I think we don't quote him in the book. He's in the film, but when he says that it's the the oldest intelligence agency right, in right. the world, so that's right, the Vatican. Yeah. Question. Um, you've talked a lot about how the common ground that Reagan had with John Paul II kind of derived from the church's condemnation of communism. Now, there are also aspects of Catholic social teaching that are critical of free market capitalism. I'm just wondering, did John Paul II have any thoughts about Reaganomics, any criticisms, and how did that influence the relationship? That's a great question, by the way, and... So people forget this, and I don't like this, but right after communism, John Paul II went after capitalism, or unbridled capitalism, as like the second evil after it, almost like the, the counterpoint in its extremes to communism, and the same one being of state, one being of liber, uh, a liberty, too much liberty, a libertarian, not libertarian, um, yeah, libertarian in nature, where it, like unbridled or unorganized or countered by by cultural or religious impulse, that, that it's not all good. And he turned, that was his efforts right after that, because he saw Poland going right to the other extreme, 
right away. So it's interesting because this is where I think they would part in emphasis or degree. I think John Paul II, being a moral philosopher, thinking beyond the just the surface situations of politics and the time he's in, I think would consider this from that moral center of theology. Like who is the man? Who is what are they made of? How does capitalism reflect the worker, his value, all these things? But I think he would have been more people forget, I go back to Adam Smith here just for a quick historical reference, but he wrote moral sentiments, right, before he wrote Wealth of Nations, and they're inseparable. I think this is a great analogy for John Paul II. You can't have freedom without moral sentiment. So if you don't have a core, the sinews of culture or a higher value system tying together the forces of capitalism or statism, they both will run amok and destroy the culture. So that's where his perspective was. I don't know if Reagan ever voiced that, but I would say in his values, he probably would have reflected that. Yeah, uh, I had a section on this in, in A Pope and a President. It's interesting how close the two were on emphasizing the crucial interdependence between faith and freedom. And in fact, Reagan, in a speech in Georgetown for the, cent- the centennial of Georgetown, so it had been 1987 or 88, talked about how uh, freedom needs faith, that, that, you, that you, you can't have a, a, what John Paul II and even Pope Francis called an, an, an idolatry of freedom. You know, freedom in and of itself, elevated for the sake of freedom, isn't good. You need the rudder of faith to help navigate freedom. So they actually agreed on that. They were they were pretty close on that. And also, too, uh, the word subsidiarity, I actually found in the original speech draft of, Notre, of Reagan's commencement speech at Notre Dame in 1981, which was four days after John Paul II was shot. And, and that speech was written by Tony Dolan. And I don't know that I think I don't think the word was actually used when when he actually gave the speech. But those two both agreed on the principle of subsidiarity, which really kind of defines Reaganomics really well. That the idea that the best way to solve a problem is to start closest to the problem at the local level. So if you have people in you know my town of Grove City, Pennsylvania, who are homeless, well. Go to the local churches, go to the local soup kitchen, go to the local homeless shelters. If that doesn't work, go to the mayor's office. If that doesn't work, go to the township. If that doesn't work, go to the borough. If that doesn't work, go to the county. If all that doesn't work, then go to the state of Pennsylvania. And then the last thing you should do is go to Washington, right, which is way farther removed from everything else. So he and John Paul II both felt that localism was the best way to approach it. The problem we have with – Modern liberalism is they look, they look to Washington first, right? But it, it should be just the opposite as a last resort. It just, yeah, just to add to that, that uh, Reagan did talk about federalism uh, in some of his speeches, and that is consistent. His kind of federalism would be the kind of subsidiarity that, that Paul is talking about. Certainly, Reagan was no libertarian in which he was you know, raising high uh, the market and for any and all purposes and any and all solutions. Could I add too? So, so I don't know of any situation where John Paul II ever said to him, like, "I'm really concerned about Reaganomics and the effect on the poor." Anything like that? Now, one a crucial issue was was the the nuclear freeze movement and and the nuclear missiles, which the the, the American bishops were very critical of the Reagan administration on that in '81 and '82. Bill Clark. I spent a lot of time on that. Uh, so did Claire Booth Luce. But in the end, including with the intervention of the um, 
cardinal for the, the prefect for the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, who was Cardinal Ratzinger, right, who became the future Benedict XVI, he ordered, along with John Paul II, to the American bishops to consider the Reagan position of peace through strength. And he said, the Reagan people are arguing that they're building up these missiles so they will never have to use them. They're building them up in order to bring the Soviets to the negotiating table. They're building them up in order to build down. They're, they're, they're creating strength in order to get peace. And so Ratzinger wanted our bishops to really think through, is there something moral? Can, you know, can deterrence be moral, right? Can, is, are you not considering the, the – yeah, peace through strength? Are you not fully considering – because the Reagan people are telling us, we're not building this up because we want to nuke the Russians, right? That's not what we're doing. It's just the complete opposite. I think I think if we took that argument one one more step there, I kind of enjoy the complexity of that argument. You'd have to go for what the Soviets at the time would argue is the difference between freedom for and freedom from. So you, if you want to put that in a balance again, you'd say we're really good at freedom from things. We avoid kings and popes traditionally um, and power and thing, and we want to be free from things. But we have a, because we're so free, we have a hard time figuring out for what. What, how, what do we want to fight for? So if you look at a quick cap, encapsulation would be, right, the Reformation's against something, right? Everything's, if you keep moving that direction, you're, everything's against something that's corrupt or bad, but you never get around to organizing, well, what is the good? What is the thing worth creating? That's number one. And number two, Reagan lived in a different time. So he had the – I think there's a convenience built behind – they're coming out of D-Day. I mean, there's a lot of unity in a country – that's coming out of D-Day as to what good and evil are or what's worth fighting for or what's not worth fighting for. There's a much more diverse, complicated world to get that kind of unity or that buy-in on the moral sentiment is a lot of work. I would just add this, that there's a very famous book called Witness by Whitaker Chambers. And for the uh, younger people in our audience today, you ought to take a look at that and particularly read the first chapter, A Letter to My Children, Witness by Whitaker Chambers. And what does Chambers say? He says that this is not an economic battle that's going on. This is not even a political battle. This is a moral battle between evil and good, meaning between us on the freedom side and the communists. Now, so you may say, well, why does he bring that up? The first time that Tony Dolan met with the president as his chief speechwriter, we're talking about getting acquainted and so forth, and um, Tony said, well, Mr. President, have you ever read Witness? And Reagan says, well. And he begins reciting the first lines from A Letter to My Children. And then not just the first lines, but a paragraph or two. And then he's starting on page two, I think, or something like that. And Tony says, okay, I get it, Mr. President, I get it. You've read the book. It's important and then Reagan explains, yes, it is important because it talks about the battle which is going on between good and evil. Also in Reaganomics, speaking of a different time, when Reagan came in, the upper income tax rate was 70 percent. So, you know, even Obama and uh, Clinton didn't take it over 40. And there were 16 different tax brackets. So it was so it was yeah, that was a different time, too. I was going to say it's, it's hard. I'm, I'm trying to avoid waxing biblical here, but the truth is there's been three phrases so far. Number one, the divine plan starts with 
the Apostle Paul who says, fear, work out your salvation with fear and tremble so you may know what the divine plan is for your life. Um, <clears throat> but I, I just thought of it again when you, uh, you mentioned this idea, we fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities mm-hmm. and the forces of evil versus good. It's like it's all built in to the Christian paradigm, and it's only worth waxing into that because I think once you, do, you detach the Christian underpinnings, the assumptions of a culture, you're ripping at what organizes the what organizes the value system, and then out of that comes, I think, the checks and balances, the recognition of human nature, what the Reformation means, what does the collective and the so it's this assumption that you could get away from it in the secularization process and still find a moral core. I think that's exactly what communism suffered from. It, it, it detached from the core of human limitation as the starting point and started with utopia down, and look at what happens. But back to the big picture. So they had a common enemy, which was militant, atheistic Soviet communism, which was responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people. And so they came together at that common ground and were able to work against that. It's interesting that President Trump and Pope Francis met just a few months after uh, President Trump was inaugurated. And, that, and the meeting actually turned out better than everybody thought that it, that, that, that it would, right? But with those two, you don't have – a commonality of purpose and common ground and common worldview. And least of all, they both didn't survive assassination attempts six weeks apart, right? If if you ask them both to define what is the great international scourge right now, they'd probably give you five different answers. With Reagan and John Paul II, it was atheistic Soviet communism. So so in a way, that time, what they came together with – this is a very, very, very unique moment in history. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've arrived at the end of our fascinating discussion. Let's please thank uh, Paul and Robert. Thank you. thank you. Now, two very important things. Here is the book. It's 20 bucks. It's on sale out there in the hall. So go out there, everybody. Buy at least one copy. Bring it, and they will. we'll be happy to sign for you, I'm sure. Where can we see this film? We're, I'm doing independent screenings, but it's coming out November 9th, which is the 30th anniversary. What's the website? Uh, TheDivinePlanMovie.com. The TheDivinePlanMovie.com. Okay. Thank you all very much for coming. All right. Wow, that flew. That flew. That flew. Really that flew. Yeah, we got two more hours left.